Welcome to an inspirational Sunday message from Found Church. We hope you will be challenged and encouraged while listening to this message. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our church website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I just thank you today for the privilege it is to come and share your word now. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll speak through me and that what I share will be honouring to you and that people will encounter you and know that they're hearing from you today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, before I start, why don't you turn to a person next to you and just tell them, if you weren't here, I would be the best looking person in this room. I hope you chose... I hope you chose wisely. Some people are telling more than one person, which is a bit worrying, but uh, I hope you chose your side wisely. I want to continue in our theme for this, the start of this year called In the Upper Room with Jesus. And the title of my message today is simply this, what's new about the new commandment? What's new about the new commandment? And you may not be familiar with the name Tertullian, and I don't know of anyone who's ever named their child after Tertullian. But let me tell you, Tertullian lived and ministered in the early years of the third century AD, so a long time ago. But he was one of the greatest of the early church fathers, and he was actually the first man to use the word Trinity to describe the nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He lived and and wrote when the time at a time when opposition and hostility to Christianity and the church was really intensifying. And although he was an apologist, which is to say he devoted himself to to defending and uh, defending the Christian Christian faith against its critics, he was quick to point out that it wasn't any particular theological or philosophical argument that would ultimately persuade people of the truth about Jesus. Rather, it was a seemingly inexplicable love that Christians had one for another that initially baffled and then finally captivated the non-Christians who lived at that time. And in one memorable statement, Tertullian said this, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, how they are ready ready even to die for one another. No tragedy causes trouble in our brotherhood. The family possessions which generally destroy brotherhood among you create fraternal bonds among us. One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common amongst, among us except our wives. Can we honestly say the same thing about us today as Christians living today? I don't think our love for one another has quite the same effect on the non-Christian people who live around us in community as it did in the time when Tertullian lived And I say that, but it also makes me incredibly sad. Today we come to one of the most famous declarations ever to come from the lips of Jesus. And despite its fame, despite the ease which many of us could quote it word for word, I wonder how faithful we've actually been at putting it into practice. And we're still in the upper room with Jesus, and we're still in John 13, and we're looking at verses 34 to 35, It says, a new command, this is Jesus speaking, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And before we dive into this, I want you to notice something that Jesus says. He is saying there that our responsibility to love one another is not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's a commandment. It's a commandment. It's not just one from many options that's on offer. I don't like that one today, so I'm going to choose something else. It's a commandment directly from Jesus. Jesus is commanding us to do something. And he will later declare that obedience is how it is known if, if we genuinely believe in Jesus and we truly love Jesus. In his very next chapter in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And of course, don't be misled. Jesus isn't for one minute saying that by keeping his commands, you will somehow get saved and go to heaven. He's saying that you've received salvation, therefore you will keep his commands. The commandment of God is that his people are to love one another. That was nothing new when Jesus said it. Everyone in that day when Jesus was speaking those words was familiar with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, at verse 17, we read, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So clearly the newness of the command to love isn't in the command itself. It is instead in the pattern or the standard or model of our love for one another. It's the way in which we are to love that is different due to the coming of Jesus. See, never in the history of mankind before has God appeared in human flesh and demonstrated his love for sinful and broken people by sacrificing himself on a cross so that they might live forever, as Peter so eloquently reminded us earlier during communion. Love may well have been required prior to the coming of Jesus, but love to a degree and in the same fashion as we see in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus for the church, well, that is altogether something new. That is altogether new. So the place that we need to begin this morning is this question, or even this afternoon, is this question. How did Jesus love his disciples? In what ways is his love for us, for you and me, displayed in his life? And we must answer this question if the pattern or model of our love for one another is Jesus' love for his people. The first thing I want to share is that he, he loves them by spending time with them. In Mark chapter 3 at verse 13, we see here that he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So note that phrase in that verse, that they might be with him. Jesus didn't call the 12 and then commission them to go into ministry on their own and then retreat off and leave them to figure it all out. He wanted to be with them and everything, everywhere he went, to watch him, to learn from him, to listen to what he said, and to enjoy his company and fellowship. Then the second thing I see about how Jesus loves them is that he loves them by showing incredible patience towards them. Not one among the twelve was ready or prepared for leadership when Jesus called them. But Jesus was committed to helping them grow spiritually. He didn't let his own frustration with their immaturity undermine his determination to love them well. And in Luke chapter 9, after Jesus has been re rejected by the Samaritans, 
James and John asked Jesus, it's crazy. He said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to come and consume them? But of course, Jesus was a little bit disappointed by their immaturity and probably more than a little offended. And the text says that he turned and he rebuked them. But this, his rebuke, though, but it was motivated by love and a desire that they would learn from their mistakes. He didn't excommunicate James and John or kick them out of the twelve and start to look for replacements to come in. His love for them was incredibly patient. And who can count the number of times that Peter said something impetuous, ill-timed, or just downright stupid? Uh, who, who can relate to Peter? There's only a few people willing to admit that. I think there's much more. We can all relate to Peter and add this to the fact that Peter would deny him three times and the other disciples would run away when they were scared when he needed them the most in his life. When you think about all of that, you can get a sense of the depth of Jesus' love for his disciples. Thirdly, Jesus loved them by teaching them the truth. See, even when it might be hard to, to, to grasp or be offensive to them, he never ever hid things from them, but clearly instructed them on what, what being his follower actually entailed. Persecution, slander, imprisonment, rejection, and perhaps even death. And our world today has a terrible problem with love. The world thinks it knows what love actually means. And the standard definition of love is that you never do or say anything that might be upsetting or offensive to another person. You never do or say anything that might get in the way of them expressing their own personal desires in whatever way and however they choose. To love someone is to affirm and approve whatever it is they believe about themselves or choose to do with their bodies or their money or their lives as a whole. That is what the world would say love is. And in our world today, it's virtually impossible to say to someone, hey, let me tell you, you're wrong on that, but you're incredibly loved. We can't say things like that. The world today rejects that. To tell someone that they're wrong, that they're misguided, that they're in danger somehow, that they're in the process of destroying their own lives, both for now and for eternity, the world would say that is to hate them if we do that. To love them is to give them unqualified, unconditional approval and affirmation. But let me tell you, Jesus never ever did that. He always spoke and acted with the best interests of his people in mind. Always. And often those, those best interests are served not only by his speaking harsh things, things that we prefer not to hear. Things like this in John chapter 3 verse 3 says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Or in John 3.36, where Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And that sounds very lovely, loving, that statement, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But let me tell you, Jesus doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Why did Jesus say such things? It was all because of love. He said all of them out of love. And then fourthly, he loved them by praying for them constantly. And the entire 17th chapter of John's gospel is devoted to the prayer of Jesus for his disciples. And we will get there eventually in this series, but we're still in John 13. But we will eventually get to John 17. But one verse there, verse 9, it says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And I could 
go on. I could give you numerous other ways in which Jesus loved, but let me remind you that he loves them by spending time with them. He loves them by showing them incredible patience. He loves them by teaching them the truth. He loves them by praying for them. And number five, the greatest expression of his love for them and for us is seen in his sacrificial death in our place to bear the judgment of our sin in order that we might have eternal life. Hey, we're going to get a wee bit heavier in this sermon, so I want you to turn to somebody else and tell them, I should have turned to you first earlier. This new command, this new commandment of Jesus had a profound and life impacting impact on John who wrote these words. And we know this to be true because it, be, it becomes the most important point of emphasis in John's first epistle. In fact, it's there that John unpacks for us some of the important truths about this love commandment. John echoes Jesus when he says that the commandment to love one another is both old and new. And we see that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. This old command is a message you have heard. Yeah, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the, the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. In one sense, it's old. As they had learned it before, as I mentioned earlier from Leviticus, they had known from the beginning of their Christian's life that they had to love one another. But Jesus had invested this command with a richer and much more deeper meaning. It's new because of the standard by which it is now to be expressed. John 13, verse 34, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Let me tell you, it's one thing to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But it's something totally different something totally different entirely to love your neighbor as Jesus loves you. If you listen to what John says in his first letter about what makes this commandment new, we see there that there's more going on than simply just imitating or imitation of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 8, it says, Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So John is saying here that what makes us love new is not merely, merely that we now have a new standard of pat or pattern that we follow, but that we have a new power inside us. You're able to love others because there's a light of Jesus, him, Jesus himself shining into you and through you for others to see. In other words, when we love as Jesus loved, we don't simply copy or imitate his love, we participate in his love. His love is in us and then through us on behalf of others. Loving others as Jesus loved us is not simply about following an example, but also about experiencing His energy, the Holy Spirit working in and through us as we do this. We don't simply love others because we see Jesus doing it. We love others by virtue of the powerful, energetic presence of the light of Jesus in us. We participate in Him and that and in that, we receive his power to overcome our selfishness, to overcome our prejudice, to overcome our hatred, and our disdain that we might have for other people. Jesus said that by loving other Christians, we show the world that we truly are his followers. We truly are his disciples. But John goes, goes even further in this, and he says that by loving one another, 
we demonstrate that we are born again. We demonstrate that we have received eternal life, that we are truly saved. And he says in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they are, where they're going, because the darkness has blinded them. In other words, to say that our love is witness to us being disciples of Jesus is simply another way of saying that our love is evidence that we are born again, that we have been saved. Here the falsity of the claim to be in the light is revealed not by our disobedience, but by hatred. And this is strong language that that John is writing here. It's strong language that he's using. He is saying that the failure to love others reveals in us a moral condition that is the exact opposite of what we claim to be. The one who truly knows God and truly is in the light will obey God's commands and will love others. We often find ourselves, if we're being honest, asking ourselves questions like, how do I know if I'm really a Christian? How do I know if you are really a Christian? Is merely saying so good enough? Is attending church faithfully good enough? Is singing loudly and praying regularly and making sure that everybody can hear me when I pray? Is that good enough? John would simply say, no, it isn't. It actually matters little what you say and how often you attend church and how much you give off your finances. If you are short of genuine, sacrificial, Christ-like love for other Christians, then you're still in spiritual darkness. You just don't know that you're in darkness. You actually believe that you are in the, in the light. But as John says in 1 John 2 verse 11, you are blinded by the darkness. And that sounds odd because we typically, typically, typically think that excess light leads to blindness, not excessive darkness. And the first service I made a mistake of looking at those lights and I could see spots. I'm not going to look at those, but it's just like those lights. If the lights were put up full, and I'll be blind. That's what we think of, being blinded by light. But he's talking about being blinded by darkness. Why? Because he's talking about spiritual darkness. He's talking about our capacity to see and understand spiritual truths in our life. His point is that if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you're actually accustomed to walking around in spiritual darkness. It feels so natural that you aren't even aware that you can't see the light. The darkness of unbelief actually exerts a blinding effect on the human heart. We read that in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 4. It says, The God of this age, and that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, this love is an internal affection, a feeling of compassion, a desire for another to experience what is best for them and what is most beneficial for them. But it's far more than this internal passion. It's also the sort of love that expresses itself in external deeds of material, concrete kindness. And the most explicit of which is a willingness to give one's life for another. We read in 1 John, well-known verses, chapter 3, verse 16, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And I think that many of us here in this room watching online 
would say that we would lay down our life for another person. Why? Because we know that we'll probably never, ever be required to do that. Here in the UK, it's very rare indeed to find ourselves in a situation where we might be called upon to literally lose our life, lose our life physically so that another might live. But in third world countries where following Jesus is a crime, this text that rings all too true for those people. And I say this because we're all too, all too, uh, all, we're all too often profess our willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice for another person, but at the same time, we wouldn't take them a meal when they're ill. We declare that we would happily give up our life for them, but then do nothing to lend a hand or give money when someone is weak, helpless, and close to bankruptcy. That is why John says here that genuine Christian Christ-like love is much more than a verbal declaration and entails a practical communication of worldly resources to those in need. And you need to note the shift from the plural us in verse 16 to the singular them in verse 17. Because we must be careful not to use our love in everyone in general as an excuse for not loving anyone in particular. Next, we are obliged to love one another because of the nature of God as love. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love and does not know God, uh, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me remind you, and it might dent our egos a wee bit, we will always be human, and we will never ever ourselves become God. Never. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the virtues and perfections of God's personality, they can be reflected and and how we think, how we feel, and how we act in our own lives. The fruits of the Spirit should be evidenced in us. God's moral character is to be reproduced in us. Here John is saying that true love is only from God. Then as as we show it, show love, it shows that we have been truly born of God and truly know God in our lives. And don't ever, ever think that just merely loving other Christians is enough. That somehow we can ignore Christians and we can ignore, sorry, we can love Christians and we can ignore the rest. Too often we hear it said, it doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters that you love. As long as your belief is sincere and enables you to experience genuine authenticity in who you believe yourself to be, what you believe or whom you believe is totally irrelevant. And I thought to myself, what would Jesus say about statements like that? And we know the answer already because John records it for us. Records the words of Jesus in John 13, where we started. Uh, John, sorry. Uh, he says, and this is, this is his commandment, that we, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And that's actually in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And as far as John was concerned... The command to believe in Jesus and trust in Him and to embrace Him alone as Savior, that is totally inseparable from the command that we love others who in like fashion embraced and, and trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There is only one commandment, and the word commandment here is singular. People won't know you're a follower of Jesus if you don't profess and make knowing your belief in Him. But neither will they know or care if you don't love others in the way that He loved us. Your love for others provides concrete, visible, visible, vocal proof 
that your trust in Jesus is real. And as the band come and we wrap this message up, let me ask you the question, how do we know that God loves us? Because he sent his son, the most precious gift possible, not an angel, but his son. He sent his son to die, not primarily to, to live or teach us or to exhort us or to be an example to us in, in life, but to die. And in Romans 5, verse 6, it says, you see, just at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son to die for sinners. Not for righteous people or loving people or kind people or pretty people, but sinners just like you and just like me. And listen again to how Jesus unpacked this truth. In John 15, verse 12, he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The love of Jesus for us was far more than a line in a speech, far more than a mission statement that they put up above their meeting room doors, far more than a verbal declaration. It was real, and he meant it. He suffered in our place and in doing so took upon himself our guilt and the condemnation that we deserve and satisfied the justice of God. Let me ask you, have you received that love today? He's willing and he's ready to freely give it to you today. But how might we, you and I, begin to love one another as Jesus loved us? We love by forgiving each other as Jesus forgave us. We love by serving one another in humility as Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet. We love by generously giving to those in need from our financial and physical resources. We love by patiently bearing with one another when mistakes and immaturity are on show. We love by deferring to one another in humility and seeking their best interests above our own. We love by speaking the truth and love, not by compromising simply because we fear that we, we might, they might be offended by the truth. We love by refusing to isolate ourselves from others, but by seeking relationships of love and affirmation and encouragement and community. We love by always being willing to suffer inconveniences and interruptions in our schedules, if that is what is called for, to serve and help and encourage others. We love by not turning away from or scorning those who differ from us on secondary theological matters. I tell you, the bane of my life is social media. See, Christians, if you're one of these people, then I'm really sorry if I offend you, but if you're one of these people who go on social media and you fill up the comment sections with stupid comments about secondary theological matters, get a life. Honestly, like... like people who in the next breath are saying oh, I never don't know why I can never lead anybody to Jesus because you spend half the time telling everybody else how much you hate them with your stupid arguments and your stupid comments on social media why on earth would anybody be attracted to that I absolutely hate it I hate it Christians they need to go back and read these passages and read what Jesus is saying about loving one another sorry that's my hobby horse oh, oh. And we love, sorry, by striving at all times to preserve the bond of unity 
of the Spirit. Some of these people could do with learning about this, preserving, preserving the bond of unity of the Spirit. We love by praying for one another. And above all else, we love by ministering and God's grace to enable others to enjoy Jesus as their supreme treasure. Have you received that love today? He's willing and he's ready to freely give it to you today. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would love to pray for us as a church. Firstly, if you've never ever received the love of Jesus in your life, he's ready and he's willing to give it to you today to offer you forgiveness and peace and a brand new start in life. If you're in this room or you're watching online, I would love to pray for you today. If you're watching online, you can scan that QR code. Give us your details. We'll be in touch. We'd love to give you some resources to help you. If you're in this room, I just encourage you right now in this moment, Jesus is ready and willing. Pop your hand up. I'll see it. I'll pray for you. And you can receive the love that Jesus has for you today. Does anybody say, Stephen, pray for me? Father, I just want to pray for all of us here as found church, Father, for in this room watching online. Father, this is hard stuff that we are looking at today. Father, all of us can feel challenged in some way about the way that we have been loving others in our own lives. And so, Father, I pray for all of us today. I just pray for forgiveness for the times that we have not loved as you have loved us. Father, we say we're sorry. We say that we want to live the way that you showed us to live. And so, Father, we turn away from that and we look to you again to lead us in the way we should go. And so, Father, I just pray you can help all of us to bring that light into our worlds, the light that you shine into us, that will shine through us, and that others will see you when they look at us. Why? Because we are loving people as you loved us. And so, Father, I pray that we will be known as Found Church, the church that loves one another, the church that supports one another, that encourages one another, the church that equips and helps one another. Not the church that points fingers and and flings rocks and stones and points accusations, but the church that builds each other up. Father, the church that loves as you love us. And so, Father, that is the challenge you lay before us today. And so, Jesus, we pray that you'll help us in that today. you help us to be your people here in Found Church, in our church community, in our workplaces, in our communities where we live, wherever we go, that we can be taking your love with us and we can be showing others how much you love them. And Father, I just pray, like Tertullian noted right at the start, that people will be amazed and say, look how much they love one another. And I just pray that will be true in our own lives as individuals and as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Please feel free to contact us through our website, foundchurch.co.uk or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.